Hey fam, what's up? This is part two of the two-part episode. Enjoy. I'm not really sure what they're really mad about, but I think a lot of stuff they say they're mad about is not really what they're mad about. I- I'll be honest with you. I think it is personal pain around the topic. You know what I mean? Um, I think some of them have been hurt by the men in their lives, you know? And I think when you unite with other people who have also gone through those things, it... Um, and which now mind you, women tend to do that more than men do, right? We all we as soon as we go through something, we go we go to the we we come together, right? Um, mm-hmm. We're very communal, right? Um, so you have a this very communal group who are all sharing the same pain, and they all have access to some of you know in act to academia, right? Um, I think. For some of them, not all. I think now for some of the other ones, I think it's also just people like being popular. I just think some people are, you know, it's, they'll never get to be Beyonce or because a lot of these people are always hyper interested in celebrities for whatever reason. Um, mm-hmm. They'll be like, oh, Beyonce is a queen. Nicki Minaj is. No, they argue about celebrities and shit. Um a lot of these women are trying to feel fulfilled, right? So they want to be able to feel influential, or like they matter, or that they're important. And I also think some people, it's ego. <laughs> so see that, yeah. You know. A lot of it is people are just hella influential, man. Like, yeah, I, I, I've seen like we. There used to be this one. Um, she used to be pretty popular on in the, in the Twitter, you know, uh, circles intersectional circles and when you would go and look at her older tweets um you could tell you know she was this happy she, oh i'm happy for black men and black women i love y'all we are so beautiful we black da, da, da. and then you could literally see the progression of her turning into this other thing <laughs> as the years went by and she eventually became like this person that would say things like uh, you know, black men are the utmost of trash and all this kind of stuff. Like you can literally see in real time, almost when you go back and you look at her history, how she turned into this thing. It's like a cult or something, man. It's it's, it's really well, scary. Sometimes. I think. Um, well, we also don't know. Maybe something happened to her within that time period. You know, um, yeah. and it, I just feel like we're we're dealing with a lot of people who have a lot of issues on on whether they're. SJWs, whether they're incels, whether they're whatever, right? And if you, because if you listen to all of them, every single one of them always like they have some sort of pain around the conversation. Because that's because the, the shit they say don't make sense. Like T said, you realize the thing you're arg you're arguing about. You think you're arguing really about you know the reality of gender and socialization, but what it's really about is the fact that you know some girl turned them down in sixth grade and called them ugly and buck tooth, right? <laughs> or, <laughs> or, you know, their mother, you know, hurt them or abused them, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, right. They watched their father in a relationship with the woman who would abuse him, right? Um, mm-hmm. they, they, were, they were children of codependence or children of narcissists, or, you know what I'm saying? So these people are, are playing out their pain, really. Um, and it's just, it's sort of sad to see Because it's like, well, then how do we fix that problem? Because if we're being honest, the reason why the Kimberly Crenshaw or whoever can be influential is because they're tapping into that pain. That's the same thing with these mm-hmm. with these uh, Kevin Samuels. See, some, mm-hmm. for some of us, it's just jokes. For some of us, it's just some bullshit on the internet. But for some niggas, that shit is real. They talk like this as their damn father. They literally sound like that. Right. I will say, and, especially for Kimberly, for for Bell Hooks, even more than Kimberly Crenshaw. Absolutely, like, like Bell she's Hooks. She's total self hook, self help. Like she, 
it, it, it's like it's like Tim said. She doesn't have citations, but it's such. Um, but she connects. Affirm, yeah, it's such affirming, uh, self help, new age type of type of messaging. Right. Right. And yeah, it's so I that's right. I, I don't I think that in the context of critical race theory, it is it is the integrity of critical race theory is under attack from both ideological extremes. The far right is making it out to be something that it isn't. And the far left is making it out to be something that it isn't. And somewhere in between, I think it's mm-hmm. important. This is why I'm I'm really working hard to um, finish the book so that it gets published in the next few months. That needs to be out there as some voice to say this is what critical race theory is, and and this is what it's all about. And mm-hmm. I'm again, I'm so grateful to all of you for. Uh, inviting me onto your platform to have this conversation because more of these conversations need to be had because there really is so much misinformation out Absolutely. there. Absolutely. Yeah. And and so I'm again I'm just so grateful for the opportunity to to be with you all tonight because of that. I'm going to segue into something that might get you in trouble. I'm going to put you on the spot. Uh sure. Irimi Ose Frimpong uh tweeted this out. And I wanted to know what you thought about it. Uh, sure. He said, there are stakes to confusing Kimberly Crenshaw with Derek Bell. The hot mess that is intersectionality weighs down critical race theory because she is alive to take interviews and Derek Bell is dead. And Ooh. that was a pretty provocative. Uh, Send me that tweet. I need to retweet that shit. <laughs> and, wow. and, and I was wondering what you... Uh, <laughs> thought, thought thought about that because 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 that was that was a pretty I thought uh, damning damning tweet. It, it is it is a compelling it is a compelling point and I mean it's it states a, a couple of brute facts. She is doing interviews and Derek Bell is dead, right? So it's difficult. So Derek Bell's voice has to sort of be represented and by those whom the most ardent some of the most ardent followers of intersectionality would label as black patriarchs, right? As oxymoronic as that terminology is, the fact of the matter is that when someone is listening to this interview, they hear my offhand joke about being blocked by Brittany Cooper, and they hear this question and this discussion that we're in now is going to look at me and they're going to say, this guy is the problem. This guy's the problem. Tommy Curry's the problem. T. Hassan Johnson is the problem. Any any black man who purports to uh, sort of represent the basic ideals of what critical race theory is, or in some sense, to not speak for Derrick Bell, but to allow Derrick Bell to speak through their own work, is going to be, is going to be, what's the word, castigated. Right. Castigated, marginalized, etc. So uh, I think that the, the tweet is sobering. I think it regrettably is in some sense accurate. And I think it's tragic that black male scholars such as myself or, or Curry or Tia San Johnson or anyone else would have to actually worry about their careers. Right. If they 
dared disagree with some of the dogmas of intersectional feminism. And so those are my those are my thoughts. Those are my initial thoughts on on that tweet. Something else I wanted to ask you, too, is what your thoughts are about Afro-pessimism, because it seems to have a lot of overlap with um, yeah. uh, critical race theory, because uh, to a certain degree, it seems Frank Willison also believes that uh, racism is permanent, but some of the nuances seem a little different. And I'll be honest, I am not super well-versed in both of them to really tease apart uh, the nuances. So I was curious if you had any... I'm glad you asked that, because I thought the same thing when he brought up um, that racism will never end. You know what I mean? Like, that that was one of the tenets of uh, of Afro-pessimism as well. So, yeah. yeah, That's right. Well, I, Frank Wilderson, I mean, Derek Bell was a lawyer. And so, as a lawyer... He has a certain, Derek Bell was a lawyer with a very strong literary sensibility, a very strong creative impulse. His writings in law, classical academic law review journals were, are, you know, very academically rigorous and so forth, but he has a literary sensibility. Frank Wilderson is more literary than anything else. And so when you read Afro-pessimism, you, you get much more of the literature and the art. Almost, it's almost a sort of poetic presentation of what he thinks Black people face. So Bell talks about racism in generally. Wilderson talks about the category of slave, right? And he talks about how Black people will always sort of be seen as slaves in one way or another. Uh, that's a distinction that I think is is probably important to make. And um, it's not... I see. It's, it's not unsurprising, right? In other words, I'm not, I'm not surprised that Wilderson, A, that he writes the way he does because he, his approach is more literary than it is legal. Mm-hmm. And law and literature have a fascinating way of interacting with one another because what is the law but a literary presentation, right? I mean, Supreme Court decisions sort of tell a certain story or give a certain narrative in a different area of the law. So they're nice. There are fascinating places where law and literature intersect. But I think the differences between them are the difference is the difference between, on one hand, with Wilderson, a more overtly literary poetic style that makes a similar point um, globally. Because I think Wilderson speaks more in global terms whereas Bell's emphasis is more so on the United States. Gotcha. Right? Uh, Wilderson's reach with his notion that the category of slave will always apply to Black people is more global in nature. And, and I don't know if, that, if, his, if his global focus is, more con- is because of his liter- literary sensibilities, or uh, I, I, I think I can say that for Bell, much of what he does with the law is is deeply connected to what he has to say about America because those two things kind of go together in his work. Right. But I think for Wilderson, it's it's more of a global emphasis, and um, his work is is fascinating, and it's it's sort of like reading a long epic poem, 
You know, like I think when I think about reading Afro pessimism, I'm almost thinking of reading Homer, uh, Homer's uh, poem, The Odyssey, right? It's this long poetic story about people is a mixture of facts and fiction and biography and it sort of goes in and out of different literary genres at some points. So I think those are some of the basic differences, but there is, I think, a deep resonance of of Afro pessim of critical race theory and Af and Afro pessimism. Mm. There's a resonance between the two for sure, I think. Gotcha. I think now that you said that, I'm sitting here thinking about it and it seems like Bell was focused much more on racism being baked into the structure of what makes up American society. And so um, structures can and have failed before. Whereas with uh, Wilderson, it's, um, it seems like it's more of a, of a uh, all-encompassing philosophy, a way of looking at uh, you know, people's consciousness and the way they think about things and, and things of that sort. I have a question because um, I I learned about Afro pessimism from the internet, so I don't really know. I didn't study the shit. I didn't, you know. And, and honestly, it sounds pretty um, doom and gloom. But my question to you guys, if if you guys know the answer to this, is Afro pessimism like a form? Is it like a? Is it defeatism? Like what is? Because I feel like in C in CRT there really oh. is a push for we still have to keep fighting anyway. Is that part of Afro-pessimist um, ideology? Wow. Um, some would say that. Um, I know that was one of the questions that was put because one of the people in mainstream um, media that brung that uh, brung Afro-pessimism back to the forefront of conversation was ta Coates. And I remember um, specifically he was asked that question. And people were like, well, what the hell is the point of even trying to fight this thing? And I believe that his response to that was, well, we struggle because we must. Like it was this sort of, um, I don't know how to, how to put it, but he, his basic answer to that was, even though this is a losing proposition and nothing will ever change, we still have to struggle because we have to, is what he basically that's, was saying. That's the, I, I feel like that's, that is but that's his, that's his yeah. take, though. I'm not but, sure. Well, but I, I, but, but I feel like, oh, I'm sorry, but I was going to, well, let me ask you this in particular. So coming off of what Mario just said um, about Afro-pessimism, is that different than what is in CRT? Because from what my understanding was in CRT from listening to your lecture is that we must do it because we won't, we won't get anywhere if we don't. Like, we won't have anything if we don't. Um, yeah. And it doesn't sound like that's the same in Afro-pessimism, but I don't know. So what do you think? No, I think you're right, Vita. Uh, Derek Bell likens the permanence of racism or coming to grips with the permanence of racism to an alcoholic who has to mm. always introduce him or herself and say, hi, my name is Tim. I'm an alcoholic. I will always be an alcoholic, even if I hadn't had a drink in 30 years. Wow. I have to say that. And I have to say I will always be an alcoholic because the moment I consider myself to have overcome my alcoholism the mo is the very moment when I'm vulnerable to a relapse. And, and I think uh, what Derek Bell, he puts it so beautifully in, in one of his interviews, he says it far more eloquently than I ever could, is that we have, uh, despite the permanence of racism, our victory is not in eliminating racism, but our victory is in the struggle against it. 
that there is something redemptive about the struggle to overcome something, even when what we're trying to overcome is impossible to overcome. And uh, he gives the example of a black woman in Mississippi who he talked to. Her name was Beona McDonald. And this was in 1964. They had just been run out by some white citizens group and they had to go back to the church to regroup. And he asked this black woman, Mrs. McDonald, how could she possibly get, how does she continue to get the strength to keep fighting? And he said she pulled him close to her and said, Derek, let me tell you something. I lives to harass white folk. (laughs) And, And Derek Bell uses that anecdote as he uses it across the board in so much of his work as the basis for his theory that we have to live to harass white folk. We have to have the spirit of Beona McDonald because as Vita so nicely pointed out, the day we stop fighting is the day we've lost. Capitulation. Yeah. Yeah. Thurgood Marshall in 1988, Thurgood Marshall was given the NAACP Lifetime Achievement Award. And when he gave the award, he said, uh, I'm, I'm, you know, he was never one for, you know, celebrations or awards or whatever. But he said, it's nice that you gave me this award. But let me tell you this. None of you can stop fighting until the day that a baby born poor in Mississippi has the same equality of opportunity as a baby born rich in Massachusetts that's white. When the black baby born in Mississippi that's poor has the same equality of opportunity, that's when we can rest. And then he said, quote, that's never going to happen. (laughs) Right? This goes into T's theory that we've already lost the war. (laughs) Right. He says, you know, it's, it's never going to be the case that a black baby born in poverty in Mississippi is going to have the same opportunities as a white Mm. baby born in in wealth in Massachusetts. But, he says, that doesn't mean you stop fighting. He said, I've spent my whole life fighting, and I don't plan to stop fighting until I'm dead. Right, and so as long as you continue to try to oppress, we're going to make it, everybody's going to be uncomfortable. Everybody's going to be uncomfortable. Oh, I like that. I like that. I like the way you put it, Mario. Everybody, everybody, you know, it's like it's like if um my mom would say, you know, if I if basically if she wasn't having a good time, ain't nobody having a good time. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. That's right, Vita. And and you you Bell's just going to tell us you have to get comfortable being uncomfortable. Right. Yeah. We we have to finish the fight. So to me. That's the real power in critical race theory is that, you know, Derek Bell says Mrs. McDonald's attitude was not defeatist. She was not in despair. She knew that the fight was going to continue. And she just knew that she had to have enough strength to maintain it. And so I think that's the if there is any hope in critical race theory, it's the hope that all of us have enough fortitude to keep going, even though what we're trying to do is impossible. I think something interesting, I was trying to interject this before when Mario was talking, but uh nehisi Coates has never claimed to be Afro-pessimist, but he's also never claimed to be critical race uh, theory either. He's kind of like elusive and slippery, but he's been called both. So I think it's kind of interesting that he's actually been held up 
in the articles as an example of critical race theory, but he's also been held up as an example of Afro pessimism. Mm -hmm. And when I've searched, I've never seen him claim um, either. And I find it interesting just in general, how things just get called um, things and it ends up uh, sticking. It's not just like on Twitter or whatever, like in published articles by journalists, they'll just label people yeah, things. They'll, and they'll I, be like calling people feminists and they're like, this person never said that they were a yeah, feminist. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> never said, said they were a feminist. So I was curious about what you think about all these people who get, because at least with Ta-Nehisi Coates, I can kind of see why they would say that because there was a lot of overlap to his work in both, um, you know, critical race theory and and um, in Afro-pessimism. But people like Ibram Kendi, and um, Robin D'Angelo and a lot of these other people. Uh, I was wondering what you think about the people like that because I don't understand how someone can see Afro-pessimism in uh, Ibram Kendi at, at all. Well, I, I think there is a market for, you mentioned Robin D'Angelo. I'm thinking also about Tim Wise, right? I think there's a market for white people to tell other white people about themselves and be considered champions of the black community, right? There's a lot that has to be parsed out here because when you talk about Robin D'Angelo and Tim Wise, and even maybe Ibram Kendi to some point, you're talking no longer really about critical race theory, but you're talking about a discipline in academics called whiteness studies. Yes. Yeah, right? and, and, and to Ibram Kennedy's credit, he's made clear that he's not critical race theory. So he's never claimed right. to be, but he gets labeled it anyway. Right, right. He gets labeled. It's because people are lazy, right? And uh, people just, people won't admit that what they learned about critical race theory, they got off of some Wikipedia page somewhere, right? Uh, but I think the critical whiteness studies is something a little different and it it talks about talks about whiteness and white supremacy as a social phenomenon that shows up in everyday life and interactions. It shows up in art. Robin D'Angelo actually spoke at my university a few years ago, and she talked about the movie The Blind Side, right? And the problematic aspects of the movie showing a white savior coming along to help this poor black kid who appeared to be a goon and wasn't too mentally sharp and and all of that. So anyhow, I think that I think there's there's a place. I mean, like it or not, white people are going to get a lot of credit for telling other white people how racist they are. And and that's just the sort of thing that happens um, in, in some of these circles. But it's important to note uh, like, and I'm glad you said that about Ibram Kendi, that he, you know, he says, look, what I'm doing is not critical race theory. That's good that he does that, because the last thing we need is lumping everything together and calling it critical race theory. So there's this critical race theory, and then there's uh, what's called critical whiteness studies. And so I think that's a key difference to keep in mind. I have a conspiratorial view about why they do that. I think to a certain degree, because Christopher Rufo was caught at a conservative, he's one of the big guys who pushes the demonization of critical race. Yeah, he's a scum. Yeah. yeah. Right. He, he was shown at a conference, like admitting that he's lying about critical race theories and that right. he's yeah. mixing up everything on, on purpose and that it's part of his 
thing. And I think part of the reason why maybe they're doing that, and this is maybe conspiratorial, but I wonder what you think. I think to a certain degree, they realize Derek Bell is right and hard to refute. And I think they're afraid of what's called the Streisand effect, where if they talk too much about real critical race theory, uh, the, the Streisand effect is where somebody put a story in the newspaper about, or on the internet, a picture of Barbara Streisand's super non-environmentally friendly house. Like that was like a gas guzzling, environment destroying house, but she's supposed to be a liberal who's, um, you know, for the environment and stuff. So she started suing uh, people to suppress the uh, pictures of the house. And what she ended up doing was only a handful of people knew about the house or saw the picture but by her making a big deal about it, she made it go viral and millions of people saw it. And they call it, they start calling that Streisand effect where you try to fight something and you end up giving more attention to it. And as part of me wonders the conservatives actually don't want to target the real critical race theory because they're afraid of even taking people off to, to even discovering it and everything. So it's like, I feel like they've created a we win either way, like heads we win, tails we win type of situation where either you're going to be conservative and take their side out of it and hate critical race theory and bash it. But if you're against them, you're going to be like, well, you know what? I want to read what they're so afraid of. But they give you a decoy. So instead of going to Derek Bell, now you're going to go to Kimberly Crenshaw and Ibram Kendi and all this toothless stuff. So they've, it's like Neely Fuller always says that white supremacists put themselves on both sides of any debate so that they'll win no matter who wins. Because even if everybody went to all these people that Christopher Rufo's critiquing, you're just going to end up with this neoliberal toothless form of anti-racism that is... Um, I think it's an example of interest convergence. Like white people want you to read that stuff, uh, mm. including white liberals, these so-called anti-racist white liberals. They want you to read that stuff because it doesn't ask any sacrifice out of them. It mm-hmm. asks them to just check their privilege and, you know, not give up any real power. And so, and yeah, black I people are the ones do, meanwhile, black people are the ones doing all the heavy lifting. Yeah. Right. Doing all the work. No, I, I think you make a good point. It's it's a real problem when it's the old straw man argument, right? If if I can if if you and I are arguing about something, I can turn your position into something that it is not. In fact, not only turn it into something that it isn't, but turn it into something that's plainly indefensible, right? So for example, a lot of the people who are advocating banning critical race theory in schools are saying things like I don't want my kid being taught that he or she is racist because he's white. But that is not the teaching of critical race theory, right? (laughs) Critical race theory doesn't do that. But if you heard that and you didn't know any better, you would think to yourself, well, man, yeah, I want to oppose critical race theory too, because I don't want people being told that they're inherently evil or oppressive just because of their race. Never mind, again, that's not the teaching of critical race theory, but the point of the straw man fallacy is to mischaracterize your opponent's view to such an astonishing degree that it becomes fundamentally untenable. It's it's indefensible, and so you win the argument. But this straw man is even more insidious because they're not only misrepresenting their opponent's opinion, they're misrepresenting the whole opponent. We're like, hey... We're not even going to point you to the right opponent. Not only are we going to point you to the argument, we're going to 
make you look at a whole different op- opponent. Like to me, I think it's a testament to just how afraid they are of Derek Bell that they don't even want to invoke right. his his and name. It, 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 it's also a slap in the face in in a way to the audience that they're trying to perpetuate this crap to because they they in essence are saying, look, man. We know that the people who we're trying to reach are, are, are not the brightest, so we could just feed them whatever and we know the, and let them do the rest. You know what right. I'm saying? Yep. They're right. not going to research it for themselves. They're not going to say, oh, OK, well, let's see what this is really all about. They're just going to take their marching orders and run with it, man. You know, and, and, and this is the real disadvantage of this goes back to the tweet that you read, T. This is the real disadvantage of being dead is that you can't speak for yourself anymore. Right. Okay? You have to have others speak for you. I I tell my students when I teach philosophy, so there's a there's a group of thinkers called the uh the sophists. And we only know about the sophists from other philosophers who disagreed with them. That puts them at a decided disadvantage, right? Mm. Because if the only people are left around to tell your story are people who disagreed with you, chances are you're not going to be fairly represented. Correct. And, and that's one of the things that I think happens to some degree with Derek Bell is that it, it's there's a space and there is a need for responsible scholarship and serious engagement with Derek Bell's work on its own terms rather than this sort of diluted, as you said, T, uh, diluted, neoliberal, uh, kind of harmless theoretical observations that you get from whiteness studies about checking privilege and so forth, that does not provide any real meaningful impetus for, uh, for struggle, right? For the kind of struggle that Bell is, is talking about. So mm. I think um, this conversation, the more we talk, the more inspired I am to really make sure that I give Derek Bell, Derek Bell a voice beyond his grave because there is so much misrepresentation out there. Sure. So I'm looking forward to your book so much. Um, can you give an example of some interest convergences that um, are at play in major milestones that get celebrated uh, all the time as civil rights victories? Because your names are interesting sure. ones. And I was wondering if you had m- more examples of sure. something that, that we tell as uh, one of our victories, but that Derek Bell or even yourself mm-hmm. uh, characterize as, like, like for example, uh, desegregation was one that, that you brought up in. Sure. In any sure. Other well, here's, here's, here's three of them. In 1986, President Ronald Reagan signed a bill declaring Martin Luther King's birthday a federal holiday. And at the same time, he was promoting the U.S. Sentencing Commission to make the sentencing guidelines so severe that it led to generation after generation of black people being put in prison in under what Michelle Alexander has come to call the new Jim Crow, right? or mass incarceration. So what would you rather have? Would you rather have a King holiday, which is nothing more than a racial symbol, or would you rather have uh, this, or would you rather have sentencing reform that resulted or prevented generations of black people, men and women, from being put away in prison for a long time? So we get a, we get a racial symbol in 
in the front, but coming in the back is this sort of uh, sleight of hand in which black mm. people are are given something that is not very good at all. It's that's like what um, Barry Glassner talks about. Um, the sociologist Barry Glassner talks about misdirection. So yeah. you know they'll pump up one conversation. Meanwhile, they're planning something else that's you know right behind our backs where they got us staring at something else, you know? That's that's exactly mm. right, Vita. That's exactly right. And if you if you take it to another level, just consider last year, Juneteenth. President Biden signed Juneteenth as a federal holiday. Why are black people happy about that? Why, yeah, I was why, sh- that why should that be why should black people be happy about that when black people essentially put President Biden in office and the two major pieces of legislation that black people really need to see happen in Washington, the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act that Representative Karen Bass passed through the House twice, has now died in the Senate, mm-hmm. and the John Lewis yeah. Voting Rights Advancement Act, neither of those two things have happened, but we're supposed to be excited because Juneteenth <laughs> is now a federal policy. <laughs> I mean, what, what, what is that? Man. I mean, why would anybody Man. be happy about that? You know, um, and that's the same principle that goes along with the King holiday. I mean, Ronald Reagan, I mean, most people know that Ronald Reagan's agenda was openly hostile to black people. But what better way to mitigate that hostility than to throw black people the bone of a King holiday while taking them to the woodshed with this idea of mass incarceration? And you know what happened from 1986 all the way for the next 40 years Black people were getting thrown in prison because of the war on drugs yep. at an alarming rate, right? So there are these sleight of hands that, that happen. Another example of um, probably a more classic example of interest convergence was the Emancipation Proclamation. The slaves weren't free because America one day woke up and thought about the moral wrongness of slavery because if they if that was the case, then emancipation, in the words of Dr. King, would not have been a freedom to the wind and rains of heaven or a freedom to hunger. Emancipation really would have been, really would have coincided with 40 acres and a mule that black people never got because the freedom from physical chains did not mean anything without the freedom to live a life that's undergirded with a sufficient amount of land and financial resources to make that freedom meaningful. And and so I think the Emancipation Proclamation happened because America, late President Lincoln was trying to save the Union, and as a matter of expediency, it went down, but it did not go down as a matter of right and wrong, because if it did, the 40 acres and the mule that black people were promised would have been a reality. You know, that makes me think of something, because hearing you explain all these and talk about these, like listing them, it's almost, I'm not going to lie to you, it almost like hurt my feelings. Like, <laughs> like that shit is <laughs> fucked up, right? <laughs> but um, I also feel like, you know, it it just sort of gives me a little bit of, um, I don't want to say like, pessimism because it does it doesn't make me pessimistic necessarily but it does open my eyes to the fact that 
Black people have been through so much and we're still fucking here. We're a goddamn miracle, you know? Yes, yeah, right. I, I've heard, yeah. I've heard uh, Dr. Joy DeGruy say that in particular. Um, and I, I thought it was a cute little thing to say, you know, but when you, when I, when I hear what you've just described, and if you think about how horrific these things have been, and even if your family wasn't directly affected, it was literally all around you, right? Um mm-hmm. The crack epidemic is an example, right? Um, the crack epidemic uh, devastated Black communities all across the country. It wasn't just one or two, right? What the fuck? How is how is L.A., Inglewood, and Compton full of crack, but somehow it's the same things happening in Miami, right? right. The same things happening in uh, Oklahoma. The same things Chicago, happening. St. Louis. Yeah. Exactly. The exactly. same things happening in Philly. I practiced law all those years representing black people, black person after black person after black person arrested during the war on drugs. It even it even filters into our rhetoric. Think about how we referred to when black people during the crack um, cocaine problem we had. It was a war. But when a white person is addicted to opiates, it's a crisis. Right. Right. People right. who are right. in a crisis need help. Yep. But when you're in a war, you have to destroy the enemy. Right. right. I'll give you another example. And I'm not, this is not a knock on her at all. But another example of a what Derek Bell would call a racial symbol is the nomination of Katanji Brown Jackson to the Supreme oh, Court absolutely. of the United States. She is, that woman is qualified. She is capable She's going to be an excellent justice on the Supreme Court. I'm not saying anything bad about her qualifications. But what I am saying is that when you look at the composition of the court, you have you, you're going to have for the first time in American history, four women on the Supreme Court at the same time. Two of them white, one of them black, one of them Latino, one of them Catholic and one of them Jewish. Right. That think about the diversity of that of that racial and ethnic and religious makeup. Now, it's remarkable that you have that and people on the left are going to point to that and say, oh, see, this is, we can live together and this is going to be good. And that's not going to do anything to deal with racism. <laughs> all, that, all that diversity, but it ain't going to do shit. All that, exactly, Vita. All, you, can, you can have all the diversity in the world among those four women on the Supreme Court. And as remarkable as it is that they're going to be on the court together, and it is remarkable, that's not going to do one thing to alleviate racism. You know, it's so something it's, that- it's a symbol. Yeah, I'm sorry. No, no, no. I I jumped in. Um, But it's something that I always find to be interesting. And the more I've been like sort of paying attention to, especially right now, local politics in L.A. because we have a mayor's race coming up. Um, It's pretty big deal because one of the opponents is one. He's like the the what's you remember that uh, that chick Mario who was from Google or some shit trying to buy her way to become a governor or some shit. Oh, um, I can't think of her name. I know you talking about. I can't. Meg or Maya, I don't know, Meg, some white lady. Some, Meg, something. So, so I know anyway, who you're talking about. Yeah. So right now we have things like that happening. So I'm paying really close attention to a lot of local politics and, and state politics. So one of the people running for mayor is Karen Bass, right? Um, what I find to be interesting about her is if you look at her track record, she's an on the ground community organizer, right? A lot of the things she wanted to push in Congress have not gone through. They've 
Mm. They've been chopped down. And you just described one recently. Right. Uh, you know, so, and I find it to be interesting that we get these symbols, but people who really want to do shit, all they get to be is a symbol, mm. you know? That's right. They're, they're, it's That's like they, the shit that they want to put, because it be, not because um, of, of something that they did wrong, but... I already know how a lot of these things go, right? A lot of these things you have to have, they have concessions. So I said, okay, fine. We'll take this out. We'll put this in. And so it's either going to get chopped all the way down to where it's meaningless Mm -hmm. or just not going to go through, right? Right. Um, Right. And I feel like that's the setup. So you get the symbol without even being able to have the action, even if you have somebody in office that's trying to do something, right? And and Karen Bass is is my hero. I mean, the fact that she was able to get that through the House of Representatives twice and and it still has not made its way to President Biden's desk, despite the fact that it was black people in five American cities, Philadelphia, Detroit, Milwaukee, Atlanta and Phoenix that flipped those five states for him Mm -hmm. and put him in office. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, he has to figure out a way to get this done because the old adage that you can win the presidency without the black vote, I think, has been proven wrong by the last election. And so there's a real question as to whether or not President Biden is going to be able to uh, leverage any of his political influence to make something happen good for the black community who essentially won that election for him. But so. I think it's bigger than even that. Cause you gotta remember there's so many corporate interests, right? Yes. Um, so you gotta remember there's a lot of investment in our, like, like the new Jim Crow describes, right? It's a lot of investment yes. in our incarceration of us being, even not even being incarcerated, even having probation, right? There's, there's money in that, right? There's so many people eating off that. Um, even without, see people talk about, well, we don't have, you know, we just got to get rid of private prisons, which I always hated that statement because my question is, what makes public any better? <laughs> you know what I mean? It's still incarcerated. <laughs> right. How the fuck does that help us, right? Um, and even then, they still contract out. So it, it's, it could be a public prison with people who are hired by a company that I, we contracted out to. You know what I mean? Right. Um, so you have these, um, these sort of, I guess if you think about I guess in a way you just think about it like that. Like, you know, there's investment in making sure that black people can only go so far because mm-hmm. we got to eat off of their labor, off of their suffering, off of their pain. Uh, we make money off of that. You know, I was listening to Jared, Jared Bell. Uh, I think that's his name. Jared Ball. Maybe it's Jared Ball. Uh, some black guy uh, who talks Jared about, Ball. huh? Ball. Jared Ball. Yeah. Jared Ball. And he made this point that I thought was really a dope point that I didn't, hadn't thought about, which funny enough, I've heard, maybe, maybe I've heard other people say it. I just forgot about it. But um, he's talked about how the, the myth of black buying power. And one of the points he makes is we get charged more than anybody else for everything. Mm-hmm. So, of course, of course, it looks like we the black the black tax. Yeah, exactly. We pay more for insurance. We pay more on our credit cards or anything that we loan, get loans on, right? Uh, yeah. We pay more. Th- uh, literally, uh, the Walmart at the, that they had at the Crenshaw Mall was more expensive than any other Walmart <laughs> that they had in, in our area, <laughs> in LA County, right? Um, in grocery stores, you see the same thing. I, I, it's funny, if you pay attention, grocery stores in certain neighborhoods, the same the same a company. It could be a, a Kroger's or a Ralph's in uh, one community versus a Kroger Ralph's in another community, and it's going to be completely different prices for the same products, right? Mm. Um, so we pay more 
And we tend to buy things that are low quality. So because we buy things, because if you're low income, you know, you got to keep the shit you buy is up breaking all the time, you know? So you have to buy new dishes all the time, you know, because your fucking uh, bowls are chipping, <laughs> you know? So now you got to buy more shit, but you can't afford to buy the expensive bowls that you can pass down to your kids. You got to buy the shit that's the, from uh, from big lots so just so you can have a fucking bowl, right? Um, a lot of what we do is us spending money to survive. And it's this myth that it's, we just happen to have all this money is that we're being charged more than anybody else. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, that's that's very true. That's a that's a good point. That's um, a really good point. I thought of a example of interest convergence, possibly after thinking about what you were saying, which is uh, those settlements, those settlements that they give those black families um, in those police yeah. cases. <laughs> w- would that be an example of interest convergence? Because they're not doing it because they really care about the black families and the well, police brutality, but it, th- th- don't they sign away a bunch of rights? It's, to- a, it's you, you relinquish your right to sue. You relinquish your right to, in some cases, talk about the case. And more importantly, this is what's so immoral about the legal system. I guarantee you that in every one of those police abuse cases or police shooting cases or police homicide cases where somebody innocent and unarmed is killed, I guarantee you in every one of those settlement agreements, there is a clause that says the city of X admits to no wrongdoing, right? Mm, exactly. And and when you don't admit to wrongdoing, I mean, talk about, yeah, talk about interest convergence. Sure. That's, that's a real example of it because the city has an interest in you keeping your mouth shut. And of course, as the surviving survivors to the family, who are often, as Vita just pointed out, living in communities where they get charged more for everything and are just trying to make ends meet, have an interest in getting their money. Yeah. And so you take the money, but it becomes it becomes a pyrrhic victory, right? It isn't right. not really, you know, when it, when a when a case settles like that and the case and the settlement agreement has a clause that says there's there's no wrongdoing on part of the city or the police department, what what have you really won, right? You haven't really won anything. I, I just want to go back to, to Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson because I don't want to leave people with the impression that she herself might not make a difference, right? She may make a difference, uh, even if it's just insofar as somebody sees her and is inspired by her. So I don't want people to think I'm discrediting her personally or her ability to make a difference. My point is that her presence on the Supreme Court is is a symbol in that it's not going to have any large scale effect on the overall well-being or safety of black people in terms of protecting them from racism. Um, That's the point that I wanted to make. And it's also interesting that she's on the court and Sotomayor is on the court, and they are the first two justices since Thurgood Marshall to have ever tried a case in the criminal justice system. Justice Sotomayor did it as a prosecutor, and soon to be Justice Katanji Brown Jackson did it as a public defender. And it's it's a it, again, this is just remarkable. It's just notable, oh. right? It's fascinating to me that. The two of them represent the two ethnic groups who have been most mistreated by the criminal justice system 
and they're the two that are on the Supreme Court. So again, there's some remarkable uh, sort of ironies there. And another remarkable irony is that there's going to be four women on the Supreme Court and Roe versus Wade is very likely, I think, to be overturned. I think that will will happen and, and that will be interesting to see the fallout of that. But I don't want anybody to think that I'm discrediting uh, her influence as a black woman. She will be an inspiration, no doubt, to the future generations of young black girls who, who aspire to academic excellence and want to be lawyers. I don't want to say that she won't make a difference in that way. But we've been inspired before, and it hasn't done anything right. to alleviate right. racism. All these, the, the, yeah, these firsts, you know, right, just right, and that I, distinction for some reason. Again, I'm, 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 you know, I'm proud of her. I'm proud that she's ascended to this level, and I think she'll be a fine Supreme Court justice. I just don't think black people should stake their hopes and dreams on this sort of inspiration. Because I just think that will go nowhere very fast. But she will be a great influence. We have to get to a point of critical mass when it comes to, you know, these firsts and these symbolic gestures and things like that. I keep thinking that we're going to get there and then we don't get there. It's just like that. It's getting worse, I'm afraid. You think so? I feel, I feel like that sometimes like 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 somebody announced a bunch like was Joe Biden he announced a bunch of like these horrible black people that worked for like some of the worst defense contractors on the planet to um you know join the cabinet and people were like cheering and you know these are people who were just hired to like bomb brown countries and I was like oh my god right. we've really lost the plot like <laughs> people working for like uh some of the worst military contractors like possible but they were uh black and you couldn't tell people so anything anyway. yeah. Yeah. Oh. i don't know man yeah I'm, i don't know i'm i'm but i'm i'm kind of pessimistic myself so i i don't listen to me um <laughs> i'm optimistic you know my, you know, i'm i'm wait i just want to be clear i'm optimistic yeah she, she's optimistic i have to be because I, I in order for me to i can understand in critical race theory that the idea is to understand that race is permanent. Racism is permanent. But the part of that, I'm I, the I can't think it that way in order for me to do the other half of that, which is to continue anyway, fight. right? To, gotcha. fight, to yeah. fight till you die, you know? Right, to, right, right. Uh, so I, I, I have to do that. So I have to think there's a possibility, wrong or right. Um, and, the, and it's like something, it's funny that it's funny that I always think about it this way because I get this a lot when I work with, children i work with teens and things like that and um a lot of people who don't understand that space at all they often say well you can't save everybody and i have to mm-hmm. like i tell them I, I get it like there are definitely kids that you know maybe i'm not the one to reach them that's totally you okay do what with you me. can right but at the end of the day yeah. i have to have in my mind that i can help this kid i have right. to have it regardless mm-hmm. of what the reality is i find because if i have a attitude that it's that i that this won't make a difference because the problem is just too bad the child's trauma is just too heavy um then i won't be able to do anything i won't be able right. to help them because i've already def- and then how can i connect with someone if i already have that defeatist attitude right so to me it's like if you're going to have the um belief i mean or to have the motivation to keep going how can we have the pessimistic perspective. Well, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a paradox, right? It's, it's a, it's a conundrum because as you point out, Vita, how can you hold that belief and then turn around and think that what you're doing is meaningful? And I think paradox for sure. 
Right. And I think Derek Bell wants it to be that way. Mm-hmm. I think uh, he wants it. He wants it to be paradoxical because he wants people to see. So that, in other words, the conundrum that you've described reflects the conundrum of racism itself. Right. In other words, the difficulty that you describe in terms of saying, well, how do I do X if if I believe Y is just as difficult as what racism has done to the United States. And I think that I, I write one of the chapters in my book is a chapter about this idea of paradox and how it's the, the paradox that sort of fuels uh, Bell and pushes him toward action, even though he knows he can't resolve the paradox. Um, and so I think I think that's sort of as Derek Bell would have it. He he wants it to be that way. Uh, but he yeah, I mean, it's it's hard. It's a hard thing to do. And and I think he he wants it to be hard for. Us. Right. I think if you believe in the concept of good and evil and you frame racism as a as a tangible, tangential evil, then because we acknowledge that evil exists and that evil will likely always exist until the end of time, does that mean that we no longer do good because we exactly. acknowledge that evil is perpetual? No, we exactly. do good. Yeah. Exactly. That, that's well put, Mario. I really like the way you said that because just because evil has always been and always will be doesn't mean we don't do good. And it doesn't mean that... Uh, Again, like I said about soon-to-be Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson, it doesn't mean that she won't do good, right? Mm-hmm. It just means that Black people can't uh, pin their hopes and dreams to a first this or a first that. Yeah. You know, we certainly couldn't pin our hopes and dreams to the first Black president. We couldn't. Thurgood Marshall was on the Supreme Court. That didn't help any that didn't make America any less racist in all the time he was on the court. And it won't make America any less racist when Justice Katanji Brown Jackson is on the court. Does that mean that they don't make a difference? Absolutely not. They certainly do make a difference. And and Justice uh, Katanji Brown Jackson, soon to be Justice Katanji Brown Jackson, will make a difference. And it will be uh, it will be a uh, a good moment for a lot of people in America, and it is a, a source of inspiration, but inspiration has never solved the conundrum of racism. Mm. Damn, that's, that's, that's deep. I like that. It's it's inspiration just, has never solved the conundrum of, of race in America. That's right. This yeah. is my final uh, question to you. You earlier had described uh, Afro-pessimism as being very literary. But uh, interestingly enough, uh, Derek Bell has this literary side too, and he actually wrote a science fiction story called The Space Traders, which to my understanding is a fictional uh, illustration or allegory for um, his critical race theory thoughts. And I was wondering if you could, you know, briefly describe to us um, The Space Traders and what it's trying to tell us in fictional form about his critical race theories, like, like what it's trying to mm-hmm. to uh, illustrate. I thought that might be a nice place to um, end sure, it. Sure. Thank you, T. That is a nice place to end it. And that's in part because The Space Traders is the final chapter of Derek Bell's 1992 book, Faces at the Bottom of the Well, The Permanence of Racism. The Space Traders is a fictional story of a group of space aliens who come to Earth 
and they strike a deal with the president of the United States. And the terms of the deal are as follows. If you agree to give us all of the black people in America and take them away, take them off of your hands forever, we will immediately uh, remove all the pollution from the atmosphere. All of your societal ills will go away. There'll be no more crime. There'll be no more drugs. Everything will be restored and America will be the white racial utopia that you've always wanted it to be. Um, the After some deliberation, the president uh, strikes a deal with the aliens. All black people are gathered together uh, from all around the country on at an appointed time, and they are sucked into the spaceship and they are taken away. And almost immediately, all the pollution goes from the oceans. The water supply is pure. There's no more crime. There's no more drugs. There's no more gang violence. Everything is all gone and black people are taken away to outer space. Um, that's the sum and substance of the space traders. You can actually see it because it was made into a short film after Derek Bell published the book. And you can see it on YouTube. If you look it up, you type in the space traders, you'll come across it. But I think the basic idea is that it shows us the permanence of racism, because A, if America could get find a way to get rid of black people in exchange for some you know, benefit to white America, it would. It, it shows us the idea of, of interest convergence, because the moment that black people, the moment that white interests diverged from black people's, black people became expendable, right? They can be sent off to outer space to be with the space aliens. And as a work of literature, it shows you Derek Bell's literary sensibility and the third tenet of critical race theory, which is this use of narrative and storytelling to make his points. Sometimes we can say things poetically that we can't say propositionally. So, for example, uh, and I, I think, Vita, you may have heard talk about this when I was in town a few weeks ago or last week, uh, when Hamlet wanted to accuse his uncle of killing his father, he didn't go up to him and say, you killed my father. He called in actors to come to Denmark from England and perform a skit. And it was in the performance of the skit that his uncle Claudius looked and reacted. And it got to him, right, indicating that maybe he really did kill his father. And and so I think the space traders shows us all three of the ideas in critical race theory, the permanence of racism, interest convergence, and through narrative and story, he gives us a real uh, robust depiction of all of his ideas in in a way that is a for him is a fitting way to end his his book faces at the bottom of the well so yeah those are those are my thoughts on that well um thank you so much um I, we have to have you on again because you are a wealth of knowledge and there's so much that you know you we haven't even we didn't talk about male childhood trauma we didn't talk which is something else you speak on um mm -hmm. you, you you have a lot of 
of work that you've put out there. You have books. I have. I'm lucky enough to have a signed copy of his uh, <laughs> book about Frederick Douglass. Thank you very much for that. You're um, welcome, Rita. You're welcome. But um, I definitely know that you're. Oh, because you're also. Uh, what is it that you do for the Philly radio station? Oh, I'm a legal analyst and commentator right. on uh, two Philadelphia radio programs in the Black community. One is on. Uh, Philly 107.9 FM for a, a local journalist named Solomon Jones. And I do a show for him on that airs. We record the show on Fridays via Zoom and it plays Saturday mornings on 107.9 FM in Philadelphia. And every Monday morning, I have a live segment with him, nine o'clock Eastern. It's six o'clock for me. So my Monday starts early. <laughs> and that's on 900 AM, the radio station, a black owned radio station in Philly called WURD. And the show is called Wake Up With Word with Solomon Jones. So mm. I'm on with him. Well, All we're right. definitely looking forward to this uh, Derek Bell book coming out because I know I'm excited about it. And I, I haven't been excited about a book in a while. I'm not going to lie. So I'm actually very excited about this. Um, T, Mario, do you guys have anything else you want to add before we close out? No, I'm just very happy that you made time to be with us and to be patient with all my type of technical <laughs> fuckery you tonight. Stole it right, you stole it right out of my mouth. That's what I was going to say. I appreciate your time and I definitely, definitely appreciate your patience. <laughs> oh, well, Mario. I definitely do too. Absolutely. Uh, Mario and T, uh, I can't I can't thank you both enough for having me. Vita, thank you for extending the invitation. What a joy it is to be with the three of you and, and have this extended conversation. I hope that as it travels across the airwaves and the internet, that it will come to the right ears at the right time. So thank you all so much. I'm humbled and honored to have been with you. And I really appreciate the time we spent together this evening. Thank you. Thank you.